a conversation about the legal issues that matter to you. This is Stanford Legal with Pam Carlin and Joe Bankman. Welcome to Stanford Legal, where we look at the cases, questions, conflicts, and legal stories that affect us all every day. I'm Pam Carlin, along with Joe Bankman. And Joe, you're a psychologist in addition to being a lawyer and a law professor. So tell me a little bit about how you got that fascination with the mind and what it's made you think about. Psychologists, we're pretty old fashioned if we're clinicians. We figure out what people are thinking by asking them and listening to them and looking to see if they're doing things like smiling. (laughs) But we can't help but read about advances in neuroscience We can actually look to see what parts of the brain are activated when people see or say something and what kind of brain ways people are emanating. Yeah, and it's changing our way of thinking about how we figure out what people are thinking and also has obviously implications for the law. And we have two of our colleagues here with us today who can really shed some light on things that we think about but we didn't think we thought about in quite this way. So the first of them I'll introduce is Hank Greeley. Hank's a professor both at the law school and by courtesy at the medical school. He specializes in the legal and social implications of biomedical technologies and of particular interest for what we're talking about today of neurobiology and neuroscience. He's also the director both of the law school's Center for Law and the Biosciences and the Stanford Program in Neuroscience and Society. And then he wrote a book with probably the scariest title for the prospects for a future happiness of people everywhere called The End of Sex, (laughs) although it isn't really about that. It's really about the end of sex as the way that we reproduce. So Hank is really at the forefront of understanding how science affects a vast range of legal issues, and in particular ones dealing with neuroscience. How is it, do advances in neuroscience allow us to detect deception or determine whether someone's in pain? So your brain, my brain, all of our brains weigh about three pounds. They're probably the most complicated physical object we know of in the universe. We've got 89 billion neurons, each of which on average makes 100 connections. Compared to 30 years ago, we know infinitely more about it than we did then. Compared to 30 years from now, they'll look back and say they knew nothing. And I think in outlines, I think we've got a few of the Roman numerals and a couple of the capital letters, and that's about it. What's happened is revolutions in tools. All scientific revolutions ultimately are revolutions in tools. And the big tool change in neuroscience has been magnetic resonance imaging, so MRI machines, and a particular use of them called functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI. The basic story here is we put Joe in the scanner and we show him a picture. And two to six seconds later, we figure out what parts of his brain are getting fresh blood. It's not a lot of fresh blood, but your brain is an energy hog. It's currently using about 20% of all the energy in your body, even though it's only three pounds. And so when you work under what somebody brilliantly labeled the BOLD hypothesis, the blood oxygen level determination hypothesis, when a part of the brain works, it gets flooded with fresh blood. And we use those to say, aha, this part of Joe's brain lights up when he hears uh, the ice cream truck pass by. And this part of his brain lights up when his kids start yelling at him. And that's basically correlating activation patterns, correlating where your brain is working with your sensations is the way we're learning more about how the brain generates the mind. So walk us through how you would figure out 
whether somebody is telling the truth from looking at which parts of their brain light up. It almost sounds like a kind of modern-day version of phrenology, you know, where you look at the skull and you figure out this is the truth-telling place. Right, and and people thought about it that way at first, but nobody's found the site of deception in the brain. I mean, we know the site of your ability to be able to make words. That's located in Broca's region, which is about here. And your ability to find words, which is in a place called Wernicke's region about there. But most things actually involve large and different chunks of your brain. And nobody, to be honest, has a good clue about what, why they're detecting the deception signal they are. But there have been over 40 peer-reviewed published scientific articles that have said when we round up the usual subjects, the undergrad psych majors, and we put them in the scanner and we tell them to lie about something, we see a pattern that with about 80% accuracy lets us determine when they're lying and when they're telling the truth. It's not one region. It's a pattern of activations of regions. It's not 100%. It's 80%. And it's not real people. It's undergrad psych majors (laughs) in an experiment. But, Hank, I was once told that one of the things we look for is just more activation in general because it's harder to lie than to tell the truth for most of us. That's one of the just-so stories out there. It's Uh one of the theories, but one of the problems with these 40 peer-reviewed papers, many of them highlight different locations. So there's not a consistent story that's come together. Whereas with something like whether you're, there's a region in your brain called the fusiform face area, if you see a face or you look at a full moon and you see a face in it, that lights up. And we've got a theory about that. We've got a bunch of, of hand-waving ideas about deception, but nobody really has a good explanation for why they're getting the activations they are. But we heard you say 80% accuracy. You know, if I only seize upon that. Maybe I say, I don't care what your theory is. If you can be 80% accurate, that's better than 50%. For some uses, maybe I'll take that. Yeah. uh, And in fact, it's one of the the conflicts between the scientists and the lawyers. The scientists say, we want to know why. It's really, if we don't know why, we don't know anything. The lawyers say, there's a good correlation. If it's a strong enough correlation, I don't care why. If you can tell me if X, then 80% of the time Y, the letter Y, not the question Y, then I'm happy with it. So it might be good enough if, in fact, we believe it. And and do you? No, not really. (laughs) Not enough. Here's my biggest problem with it. Apart from the fact that undergrad psych majors are not representative of the world, They're what we called weird. They're white, educated, industrialized, rich, uh, developed country subjects. (laughs) Dilettantes. That too. But the bigger problem is they are in an experiment where they've signed a consent form. They know it's an experiment. Somebody has told them, when you see this, lie. Is that really like what happens when my mother every Thanksgiving says, the turkey was too dry, wasn't it? (laughs) <laughs> and I say, no, it was perfect, as always. I hope my mother's not listening. You're, actually, your turkeys always are wonderful. Oh, um, I oh. see something lighting up. <laughs> yes. I see something lighting up. <laughs> and we don't know what, how, how akin it is to somebody being asked, did you try to buy cocaine from this undercover officer? No, of course I didn't. So it's what we call an ecological reality, ecological realism problem. That plus the fact that the different studies show different areas lighting up. And one other thing, it turns out you need a really cooperative subject for lie detection. 
for this kind of fMRI lie detection. If you start moving your tongue around inside your mouth, no one can see it, but you mess up the fMRI. I'm if, already trying it. If you think about wiggling your toes, if you count backwards from 100 by 7. You mean if you think about wiggling your seven, toes, not, wink, not actually wiggling them, but just thinking about wiggling yep, your toes. Yep. <laughs> there's, a, there's a great study by Georgia Ganes at Harvard. He had 10 subjects. Another problem with all this is the ends are very small. He had 10 subjects. He was 100% accurate. Then he told him, do it again and think about wiggling your toes. And he went down to 30% accurate. So there's some problems. This is not ready for prime time. This is Stanford Legal, and today we're talking about evidence law and technology and neuroscience, and our first guest is Hank Grilly. Um, can, I, can I ask you about another aspect of this sort of experimentation that I've, re- that I've read about, which is they say that by doing fMRIs, you can tell whether somebody has seen something before or whether this is the first time they're seeing it. Can you walk us through that? Because that's always struck me as really interesting for questions about eyewitness identification and things like that. So the best work I know of about this is done by Anthony Wagner here at Stanford and um, a former postdoc of his who's now at UCLA. And they equipped Stanford undergrads with little cameras that took a bunch of pictures. And they showed them some of the pictures along with some pictures of things that they hadn't seen. And they asked them to, to tell them whether they thought they recognized it. And they were around 85 to 90 percent accurate just by looking at the fMRI pattern and determining whether somebody thought they recognized this or not. They tried to see whether people, in fact, had accurately recognized it. And they were better than chance, statistically significantly better than chance, but only 58 percent accurate. So we're pretty good at being able to tell whether you think you've seen it before but that's not really helpful from a legal perspective. We're not very good. Yeah, we want to know whether you did see it, not whether you think you saw it. Now, there yeah. is another method out there that's intriguing that uses a different kind of lie detection called the guilty knowledge test. And this uses an EEG. EEG, electroencephalogram, old, cheap, portable, easy, whereas MRI, expensive, difficult, et cetera. You show somebody or have them listen to or somehow give them an experience. And if their brain thinks somehow either it recognizes it or it remembers it, or my guess is it's salient, it's important, 280 milliseconds later, a certain EEG wave happens called the P300 wave. So there's a a researcher at Northwestern named Peter Rosenfeld who did this great study. He had eight pictures of iconic photos from a city, Eiffel Tower, Golden Gate Bridge. And he had eight pictures of locations like sports arena, train station, airport. And he had eight pictures of instruments of destruction, machine guns, bombs, nuclear stuff. Each person got to see one of each. He then showed them in random order, all 24 of them. And by looking at the P300 wave, he was 90% accurate at picking out exactly what those people had seen. That guilty knowledge test is a different – it's not memory exactly. That one I think has a lot of potential. But Peter being a really good scientist and being uh, savvy as well, immediately put a postdoc to work looking to see if there were countermeasures to make it not work. And when that guy succeeded, he put another postdoc to work seeing whether there were countermeasures to the countermeasures and there were. So it's interesting, promising. We'll see. I want to turn to the other thing that Joe mentioned that you've been taking a look at, which is um, neuroscience and figuring out whether people are actually in pain. Could you tell us a little bit about what the developments are there? Sure. Ow! Yes, that hurt. It hurt my hand. It hurt the hand I hit. It hurt the hand I hit with. 
But the pain is but in the brain. But it hurt me more than it hurt you. I doubt it, actually. But the pain is in the brain. There are actually people born with a genetic condition that means they can't feel any pain because their brains aren't structured to feel the pain. It's actually quite disabling. So fMRI is being used to find the networks. And again, it's not just one location. It's four or five locations that get activated in a particular order when people report having the sensation of pain. This is potentially really useful because we don't have any good, really good tests for most pain. You get hit rear-ended by a car and you complain about neck or back pain. The x-ray probably won't show it. And if it shows something, it's something that, could, that perfectly healthy non-pain people can have. If this works, it could be a really useful check on people's self-report about whether they have pain or not. That's not so important in the criminal context, although you could probably construct some scenarios where it worked. But not just auto accidents and tort cases. There are hundreds of thousands of Social Security disability hearings and proceedings mm -hmm. every year where somebody claims, my pain is so bad that I'm disabled, I can't work, pay me. Some of those people get money when they shouldn't. Some of those people don't get money when they should. If this works, uh, it'll be a real advance, and it'll save a lot of lawyers and judges a lot of wasted time as well. This is Stanford Legal, and today we're talking about neuroscience and how it applies to questions that get raised all the time in the context of legal cases, truth-telling and pain. We're talking about it with Hank Greeley, our colleague at Stanford Law. And Hank, I want to follow up on how this could help triers of fact, as we say in law. Right now, you've got to make that determination. Is someone lying to you or not? And I know one thing that has recently come to light is there's some evidence that doctors, for example, might be more skeptical of poor people, of African Americans, of other marginalized groups that report pain. It, that could reflect racism, but it could also reflect some biases or just some unwanted unneeded generalizations if we could really get to that. Right. So you'd have to have something other than MRI to use for this because you're not going to spend several thousand dollars in the examining room. But if you got a cheap, easy way of doing it, doctors are now increasingly in a dilemma. If they give opiates and other painkillers too frequently, the Drug Enforcement Administration comes down on them hard. If they give it too infrequently, their patients don't get relief. And they have no better way than trying to read people – of reading people's minds than the ones we all use all the time, which we know are not 100 percent accurate. So if they could tell, yes, this person, their brain is showing signs that they are in fact in pain. This one isn't. It could help them distinguish between people who are engaged in inappropriate drug-seeking behavior, either to abuse it themselves or to sell it on the black market versus the people who really are in pain. And pain is so complicated that it's really hard to tell whether or not somebody truly is in pain, whether or not drugs truly are working on them. Somebody for whom codeine doesn't work and so they want something stronger. About 7% of Americans get no response from codeine for genetic reasons. So, yeah, helping to mitigate race bias. There's some evidence on gender bias. There's some evidence on class bias would be another really good use of this kind of technology if you could do it cheaply and easily and accurately enough to bring it to the doctor's office. Do we, do we worry about people coming up with their own countermeasures? So I want to get some more drugs and 
is thinking about pain enough to to register those pain waves? So I've been trying to get actually a Stanford doc who works on this, Sean Mackey, to do this experiment. He's done a little bit of it, but he hasn't done enough to publish. I've had two kidney stones. I do not recommend them. They are intense pain. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's the only time my doctor wife has ever seemed genuinely sympathetic to <laughs> my health conditions. Well, that and the vasectomy. But uh, it's really painful. If I lie the in the TMI scanner. The TMI part of my brain is lighting up. <laughs> if I lie in the scanner and I think about that kidney, those kidney stones and I actually can pull back kind of a too vivid recollection of those kidney stones – Will it look like I'm in pain? Sean's preliminary work, as I understand it, says no, you can distinguish between it. There's another line of work that says you can distinguish between um, the, between nerve impulses being received by your brain from ex- outside parts of the body. It's a really good question. Probably it can be fixed, but we won't know until the work gets done. So you've mentioned the cost issue. Is this one of these areas that's a little bit like so many other scientific areas where the cost is likely to go down over time? Or is this like a lot of healthcare areas where the cost is just likely to go up and up and up? So yes and no. The cost of MRIs is not likely to go down very much. Um, and and unless why is that? They, they require the superconducting magnets. They generate a magnetic field that's about a million times stronger than the Earth's magnetic field. And to do that, you need to cool these magnets down to liquid helium, with liquid helium to four degrees above absolute zero, which makes, you know, Alberta, Canada in February look warm by comparison. It's like minus 373 Fahrenheit. The, that costs a lot of money. I mean, and but takes will a lot we come of equipment. up with some other way of doing this, do so you think? One, so we might get to MRI through higher temperature superconductors, which have been really exciting for 20 years and still aren't here. Or we might come up with other tools. The BRAIN initiative that the U.S. government under President Obama instituted is looking for other tools. They're not there yet. But I think there's a decent chance how soon, how good, how expensive – but this is an area where I think newer tools could bring down the expense. And the real benefit, you could figure out how to do any of this with EEG. Uh, that takes the cost down a hundredfold or more. We'll be back with more from our guest, Hank Greeley, and we'll be introducing another one of our colleagues to you next on Stanford Legal on Sirius XM Insight 121. Answers for the legal questions you've been thinking about. This is Stanford Legal. Welcome back to Stanford Legal where we look at the cases, questions, conflicts, and legal stories that affect us all every day. I'm Pam Carlin, along with Joe Bankman. And our guest for this portion of today's show is Bob Weisberg. Bob's a colleague of ours, the co-director of the Criminal Justice Center at Stanford Law School. I'd like to start by just asking you, you know, you deal with these issues in the context of criminal justice, lying, questions about pain, suffering, and the like. As a practical matter... How do you think that the insights that Hank's been telling us about are going to get introduced into the criminal justice system? Well, people are trying to introduce them but having great difficulty. And there are a couple of reasons broadly stated. First of all, all the questions which Hank has addressed about just how reliable even the neurological conclusions are. But the greater challenge in some ways or the additional challenge is even if this information was accurate for what it purports to tell us, what exactly is its relevance to specific issues in criminal law? 
Of course, anytime one talks about neuroscience and criminal law, somebody will say, wait, this suggests that we're going to have to acquiesce to a deterministic view of human action. Oh my gosh, what will happen to free will on which the, the very premise of our criminal justice system? Well, there's that, but one could be more particular about it. Let's just take the issue of lying, for example. Let's assume that the fMRI or other technology could be a perfect lie detector. But when Hank talked about the artificial population of college students in an artificial setting, very important point in part because uh, it, it is a particular demographic, but also because the experiment assumes something is right or wrong, true or false. I mean, it's artificially set up that way. Questions of truthfulness especially involving a criminal defendant, but also witnesses in a criminal case, are much more nuanced and complicated. They're often about things like, what did you actually see? What did you understand was going on? What level of risk did you assess? So I think even if we got very far in detecting lying in a binary sense, something is true or false, and you know it's true or false, I think it's going to be complicated there. That often comes up in the context of particular kind of prosecution for making false statements, Correct. right? So there's a federal statute, 18 U.S.C. 1001, that says right. basically making a false statement to a federal official in the course of his duty is a crime. And that's turned out to be a really devilish area of law to figure out what counts as a false statement. Right. And there again, context makes a difference because the false statement is often about something that's complicated or abstract. Did you realize that he was sending your tax money to the wrong shelter and so on and so on? Did you recognize that there was a danger there that you hadn't? Did you tell the truth earlier? Ironically enough, a question about earlier truth-telling. So it is true that uh, the so-called 1001 violations, the uh, false statements charges, seem like the sh sharpest context for this question. Even there, I think it would be quite tricky. But you could imagine, Bob, in some cases it would be really useful. I'm innocent of something, and mm -hmm. I can't convince people. Mm -hmm. And I say, start throwing these questions at me. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be convicted unless I grab this straw. I'm pretty clear that I'm going to be acquitted, at least by the lie detector fMRI. Yeah. I take it that none of these are actually admissible in court right now. Could I bring that up earlier to the cops and say, let me talk to you about this technology? Well, my simple answer to your question is it is as it is done with lie detectors. Criminal suspects or criminal defendants often volunteer to take a lie detector test, and let's assume most of the time they're making a good gamble. The honesty inference cannot be admitted in court, but it sure in heck can affect whether the police will pursue the case or whether the prosecutors will. This is Stanford Legal, and today we're talking about science and evidence and neurology and neuroscience with our colleagues from the law school, Hank Greeley and Bob Weisberg. Joe? How often I want to come back to people saying, give me a lie detector before you charge me. How common is that? Not very. I sense that many lawyers worry, first of all, that their clients are actually going to be found to lie or will be falsely inferred to be lying uh, because of the inaccuracy of it. It's not very, very common. Very often, the volunteering to do it, even if it's a little disingenuous, is a marker, uh, a, you know, uh, a sign for the defendant uh, of confidence and something to uh, try to tamp down the prosecution's enthusiasm. 
I mean, one of the other things that you're really an expert on, Bob, is the Fourth Amendment and the right to kind of keep things private. Do you see a threat coming from this kind of science to Fourth Amendment values? Well, it's interesting that with the talk about fMRIs generally, I mean, we think of, you know, uh, medical patients who obviously fully consent in every sense of the term. Where it is being introduced in court, uh, and there have been a few cases, I believe all civil cases, where uh, the deception concept has actually entered the court, obviously no general legal resolution of admissibility, but some instances of it, the report, I mean, the, uh, and sometimes uh, I assume the actual picture of the MRI presented to the jury, although Hank can speak to that, but also the interpretation of it by an expert, it's proffered by the person whose mind is being uh, examined. And then it's just a question of admissibility and relevance. But flip it around. Actually, it's a completely unknown question as to whether you could be forced to undergo an fMRI. There are certain things you can be forced to do, like put your finger fingers on an ink pad. And you have to give a blood sample. You have to give a blood sample with some complications I mean, you, you about what you need warrant, a warrant. But, you can get a but, warrant. Or DNA samples. Now, let me go to the other end. Yeah. There's a, a not much remembered but important case called Winston versus Lee where a suspect was thought to have a bullet, a bullet fragment well into his arm, the presence of which would absolutely determine whether he was guilty or innocent. The... Uh, the police got a warrant. There was plenty of time to do it. They got a warrant, and the the surgery wouldn't have been life-threatening, but the Supreme Court said you, there are certain places, literally, you can't go. So whether you would uh, analogize an fMRI to an invasive procedure or to a kind of superficial external procedure, I think is simply unknown. And if we take Hank's statement that maybe used just the, the brain waves then it's not invasive at all. That would be, you'd have a stronger case. We're going to show you something and, and check for these waves and hope you don't have the countermeasure of wiggling your toes. Now, the interesting thing there is that it's kind of metaphorical to say that it's not invasive because there are lots of less exotic, uh, though maybe more amusing Fourth Amendment cases whereby an electronic device or some other device, one of the devices in this case could be a dog with a nose, who or which is external to the house or the person or the bag, but can detect things from the outside that no human senses can detect. And sometimes the degree of invasiveness, just in terms of what it could reveal about someone in terms of privacy, is treated as the equivalent of an actual physical entry. And who knows what would be true of fMRIs then? Yeah, I mean, it's a, re it's a, it's a really, I think it's a really tough question because the DNA evidence that the government now gets from people, they don't need a warrant because it's easy to get the stuff in all kinds of ways that don't invade your privacy at all. I mean, I remember when I, taught at the FBI Academy, one of the instructors telling me about following a guy around for an hour and a half until the guy threw away a coffee sure. cup and then just grabbing the coffee cup. No warrant needed. And, and in fact, uh, the Supreme Court has gone a step farther and said that the police can do a swab to get DNA from anybody who's been arrested for any serious crime with no more specificity. Hank, now you've heard Bob's thoughts about how this can be used. Is there anything you would add? Yeah, I think a really hard question that we'll have to confront or maybe our kids will have to confront is cognitive liberty. I mean, do we have a right to protect the insides of our brains, the insides of our skull? Nita Farahani, a law professor at Duke, has written about the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendment and First Amendment. Her conclusion is, unless you got a really, really aggressive court, 
the current amendments with the current presidents don't cut it. She thinks we need a statute or a constitutional amendment if we want to try to preserve cognitive liberty from the next generation of tools. You just add, though, I mean, these tools don't exist. They're not being made for evil dictators. They are being made to try to relieve human suffering. There's a strong moral and political compelling force that's leading to these tools, but they're secondary uses as well. And it's the secondary uses that are what appropriately should be worrying us. I know. And if you've read 1984, you understand exactly what Hank is, Hank is talking about. So thank you so much for joining us today on Stanford Legal here on Sirius XM Insight 121.